need to be separately considered. Achieving aims but emerging with material losses is clearly an ambiguous result. Similarly, achieving uh, material gains but failing to realize one's primary aims is also an unclear outcome. Often, however, material gains and satisfaction of aims converge to provide the same conclusion about which side has won and lost, since it is these material changes which tend to be the principal issue at stake. Now, in some cases, framework one provides an accurate explanation for the evaluation of observers. Observers evaluate the outcome of events in uncontroversial ways. One state is clearly victorious, achieves material gains, and is viewed as the winner. For example, no one doubts that the British lost the Suez Crisis, or that the Allies defeated the Japanese in 1945. The events and subsequent evaluations in these cases were largely unambiguous. However, in other cases, the material outcome of the crisis bears only an ambiguous relationship to the evaluations of observers about victory and defeat. Here, the balance sheet does not decide the winner. Other factors are at play, skewing perceptions of victory. For example, in spite of Hitler's clear material gains at the Munich crisis in 1938, there were a series of assessments and reassessments of who in fact had won and lost in the crisis. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, Neville Chamberlain, for example, declared the settlement a diplomatic coup producing famously peace in our time. Yet critics quickly uh, believed that the crisis settlement had uh, been a gain for Germany and that Hitler would soon make additional demands. Now interestingly, Hitler himself in 1945 looked back on the Munich crisis as a defeat for Germany, since he now believed that 1938 would have been the optimum time to go to war. But of course, uh, since 1945, uh, Munich has become widely seen as a reverse for the anti-fascist state, and indeed is normally utilized as categorical evidence that dictators should never ever be appeased. Now, I'm primarily discussing crises today, but the argument is also applicable to some wars. Take the case of the Viet Cong Tet Offensive in January 1968, for example, which is now widely understood to have been a military victory for the United States, but it also constituted a momentous political defeat which contributed to the United States leaving Vietnam. The 1973 Yom Kippur War is also widely seen by historians as a military victory for Israel, yet it held its significant political uh, benefits for Egypt. Now these examples illustrate that the evaluations of victory and defeat can depend on who the observer was, when and where they evaluated the settlement, and how it was reported to them. As observers, we believe ourselves to be judging the outcome fairly and objectively. However, it appears that we often cannot help but see outcomes in international relations through a series of subconscious lenses. This approach to understanding the evaluations of observers can be called Framework 2. Or match-fixing. Now, the three sets of influences follow the formation of perception in chronological order. Prior biases, firstly, exist before the crisis begins and may derive from a variety of sources, of which I mention a few. They represent the lenses through which information about the crisis is received and distorted. Now, what I term the crisis evolution 
corresponds to the particular day-to-day unfolding of the crisis, the events on the ground, and the way in which these events create framing effects. Finally, perception <coughs> manipulation represents the deliberate attempts by governments and other groups to influence and shape observers' perceptions of victory and defeat, both during and after the crisis, what we might call spin. Now, on the basis that a, a good example is worth a thousand theories, I will elaborate in this section on how the rival frameworks, framework one and two, can be applied to evaluations of, of the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, I'm sure that everyone here is knowledgeable about the crisis, but briefly, the Soviet missile installations in Cuba were discovered by the United States on the 15th of October, 1962. A week later, Kennedy publicly announced both the discovery of the missiles and the U.S. imposition of a quarantine or blockade on the island. The crisis ended on the 28th, when Khrushchev announced that he had ordered the weapons dismantled and returned to the Soviet Union. Kennedy, in turn, stated that the United States would not invade Cuba. In addition, in secret talks between Robert Kennedy and the Soviet ambassador, the U.S. asserted that American Jupiter missiles in Turkey would be gone within five months. Now, one is struck by the extent to which observers on all sides, including the United States, the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, and most later historians, all describe the crisis as a great victory for the United States. I'll just give you some examples of this. Um, in the United States, for example, Newsweek, Richard Nixon both agreed that Kennedy had won, and he derived political benefits from this, including his approval rating and the midterm elections. In the United States, it's also generally been seen as a Soviet humiliation, uh, and it was one factor in contributing to Khrushchev's removal two years later. In Cuba, Castro also saw it as a defeat and was outraged by the settlement. The Chinese also saw it as a Soviet defeat. They called it a Soviet Munich, said it was adventurism to place missiles in Cuba and capitulationism to withdraw them. And the majority of later historians have also tended to concur with this assessment. I'll just give a few examples. Arthur Steen, Robert Service, uh, and May and Zelika saw it as a humiliating defeat. JFK himself said it was a great victory uh, for the United States. Now, there were a handful of critics of the outcome in 62. From the left wing, for example, came some suggestions uh, that JFK had gambled with mankind's future. Um, and Khrushchev himself, in his memoirs, tried to present the uh, outcome of the Cuban Missile Crisis as a triumph of common sense. Yet, overall, these voices of discontent were largely drowned out in the quickly established consensus that 1962 had witnessed a major American triumph. Now, recently, revisionist historians have suggested that the settlement terms of the crisis were more of a compromise and cannot justify claims of an unalloyed U.S. triumph. Even the revisionist historians uh, argue, however, that Kennedy uh, imposed his will on Christian. Now, the question is, what criteria produced these evaluations of who had won <coughs> and lost the Cuban Missile Crisis? Can Framework 1 explain the widely held perceptions of victory and defeat in 1962. Firstly, we can consider the material changes. 
and the subsequent alterations in the relative security position of the superpowers. Secondly, we can identify how these security alterations related to the aims of the major participants. Now, I must tell you first that any framework one analysis is inherently problematic. For example, it is very difficult to um, objectively understand the aims of decision makers based on archival and other sources. Uh, these aims can, for example, change during the crisis itself. Now, this fact makes this kind of study more difficult, but it also reinforces the overall argument that uh, subjective perceptions and misperceptions shape evaluations of history rather than an objective reading of the terms. If it is difficult for a political scientist or a historian to uh, objectively measure the, the satisfaction of aims, then it must be more difficult for a contemporary. With this in mind, the following suggests that Framework 1 does not support the widespread perceptions of a major US victory, nor of a major Soviet defeat. Changing security positions, or material changes. Now, in some ways, the United States security position became stronger as a result of the events surrounding the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy achieved the removal of the missiles, which would have had a shorter flight time to targets in the United States. <coughs> The overall strategic effect of their deployments <coughs> has been criticized because it was only a matter of time before the Soviets uh, developed a comprehensive arsenal of ICBMs. Nevertheless, the Cuban missiles were withdrawn and Khrushchev accepted that uh, the Soviet Union would never again place missiles in Cuba. Now, in return, the Soviets gained a non-invasion pledge. At the time, Castro and Khrushchev fully anticipated a second US-backed invasion following the Bay of Pigs landing in 1961. In 1962, the United States again appeared to be signaling the intention of invading through extensive military exercises in the Caribbean. After the Cuban Missile Crisis finished, the United States made deliberate efforts to keep the nature of the non-invasion pledge vague, tying it to Cuban good behavior. Nevertheless, the evidence suggests that the US regarded the pledge as a de facto binding agreement and the military and political costs of a second invasion have been raised considerably. Overall, the menu of US options to Cuban policy have become more constrained. Now, the US have also agreed to the removal of strategic missiles from Turkey. The significance of these Turkish missiles has been criticized because they are widely seen as obsolete in the administration and uh, were due to be replaced at some point in the future. However, the missiles appear far from obsolete in the eyes of the Turks, or indeed uh, in the eyes of the Soviets. Kennedy was well aware that uh, Turkey was extremely averse to losing the missiles, yet they now have to be removed whatever the Turks thought about them. The concern for American credibility with respect to its allies explains why this part of the Cuban settlement uh, remained a secret, known only to a small number within the administration. Now, to illustrate this point about relative security changes, let me uh, offer you a wild counterfactual. Imagine for a moment that in this dawn of the space age, an astronaut goes up to space before the Cuban Missile Crisis begins and returns to Earth after the Cuban Missile Crisis is finished. Now, in his absence, some <coughs> things have not changed. For example, there are no nuclear missiles in Cuba. Yet some things have changed. <coughs> the United States, after uh, supporting the invasion planning another invasion, uh, trying to uh, sabotage and undermine the regime, and having never accepted the legitimacy of Castro, has now issued a public non-invasion pledge. If the astronaut was also aware 
of the American uh, commitment to remove missiles from Turkey, this was out of his surprise. Now, to suggest to the astronaut that in his absence, it was the Soviets who had suffered a major defeat, <laughs> would appear baffling. Now, this is not to say that the astronaut's perception of events would be any fairer than that of another observer. It is simply to say that his perception, based solely on the material changes, might well be strikingly different from that of another observer who crucially observed the crisis unfolding. Now, what about the satisfaction of aims? Khrushchev's aims in the Cuban Missile Crisis have been widely disputed, and there appear to have been a multiplicity of motives. Missiles in Cuba would offer a qualified increase in Soviet strategic power. However, the evidence is that Khrushchev was after something more than just missiles in Cuba. Some writers suggest he wanted gains in Berlin. Yet once the crisis broke out, Khrushchev did not raise the stakes with the move in Berlin. In fact, he never mentioned Berlin. Instead, attention was focused on Cuba and, to a lesser extent, on Turkey. In addition, as the crisis escalated, Khrushchev was increasingly fearful that events were getting out of control, and it became one of his aims simply to defuse the crisis. Now, although his precise motivations are unclear, it should be noted that the two specific aims that Khrushchev himself outlined were both satisfied in the final deal. A US post not to invade Cuba, and the removal of the American missiles from Turkey. Recent work in the Soviet archives corroborates the view that the defense of Cuba was a very important reason for installation of the missiles in Cuba. Khrushchev saw Cuba as a potential model of the Third World Revolution. Khrushchev also did care about the missiles in Turkey. There is a story that when he went down to the Black Sea and took a friend down, he would gaze out over the water towards Turkey and tell his friends that what he saw across the water were American missiles in Turkey aimed at his house. Now what about Kennedy? His core political aim in the crisis was undoubtedly to remove the missiles from Cuba, and this aim was successfully achieved. However, the political status of Cuba was considered uh, to be a significant criterion for evaluating Kennedy's success in his wider Latin American policy indeed in the global struggle against communism. The United States sought the removal of Castro, yet after the crisis ended, the Cuban communist regime had never been more secure. There was considerable skepticism within the US about the work of the Turkish missile, as I alluded to before. However, the fact that the US demanded secrecy for this part of the deal demonstrates that the public trade of the missile would have been considered a major defeat for the United States. Now, framework one analysis is therefore insufficient to explain the perceptions of victory and defeat in the Cuban Missile Crisis, i.e. in American triumph. But if the settlement terms were essentially ambiguous, how do we explain this near consensus of opinion amongst widely differing voices that the US won a substantial victory in 1962? Now, in the following section, I argue that a more convincing answer is offered by a framework two analysis, which incorporates the roles of uh, prior biases, crisis evolution, and the deliberate manipulation of opinion. So let me just go through them all. Prior biases. Observers, including the media, politicians, and the public, may have prior biases in perceptions of their leaders, or foreign leaders, or foreign countries, which can lead to systematic prejudice in the interpretation of events. Now, I cannot offer a comprehensive view of the 
world views of all audiences in 1962, but I can suggest some key individual and societal biases which influence evaluations of victory and defeat. Now, in the case of several important observers during the Cuban Missile Crisis, prior biases appear to have predisposed him towards evaluating events as a Soviet defeat. The Chinese, for example, perceived the Cuban settlement from a viewpoint heavily influenced by the developing Sino-Soviet split, and tend to show particular sensitivity to any evidence that the uh, Soviets were uh, selling out to the capitalist states. In this context, Mao interpreted Khrushchev's actions in 1962 as a validation of China's anti-Soviet steps, and the removal of the missiles led to a new low in relations between the two countries. Castro and the Cubans also approached the crisis with a set of prior biases, which predisposed them towards a critical view of the settlement. The Cuban perspective tended to emphasize several elements. For example, idealistic hopes for an immediate world revolution based on the Cuban model. And secondly, the belief that Khrushchev had made the protection of Cuba equivalent to the defense of the Soviet motherland, both of which were misperceptions. Given these beliefs, it is unsurprising that the Cuban regime were incensed that the Soviets had apparently backed down. Now, the Soviet domestic context also shaped interpretations of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, producing similarly negative evaluations but from a set of very different prior biases. By 1962, Khrushchev's prestige had fallen both amongst uh, the military and the wider public, due, amongst other things, to <coughs> cuts in defense spending and uh, increasing food prices. Now, these facts, I would argue, predispose Soviets towards a critical reaction to Khrushchev's performance in the crisis. Not all viewpoints, I should note, were predisposed to see Khrushchev as defeated. For example, it is not clear whether there was any systematic prejudice within the United States which predisposed an American audience towards favorably or disfavorably interpreting uh, Kennedy's actions. Uh, the European reaction to the Cuban Missile Crisis strongly reflected Europe, Europe's position at the front line of the Cold War. Therefore, European leaders overwhelmingly backed a firm stance, but they also tended to see the avoidance of general war as overwhelmingly the most important result of the crisis and tended uh, to be less likely to see one superpower as the decisive victory and one superpower as the defeat. In fact, uh, arguable Soviet restraint uh, led partly to uh, improvements in uh, European-Soviet relations in the 1960s. Now, what about crisis evolution? Perceptions of victory and defeat are also dependent upon what I term crisis evolution which represents the particular way in which the crisis uh, events and the subsequent settlement unfold, and the resulting impact of these events on the framing of the crisis. Now let me give you two main examples. Firstly, the crises tend to be simplified by observers into basic types. For example, a negotiated settlement, <coughs> or a standoff model in which one actor blinks first. These simplifications are important because the negotiated settlement model would predispose observers to see outcomes as a draw, whilst the standoff model would predispose observers to see whoever it is that backs down first as the defeated party, without necessarily basing its evaluation on the actual settlement terms. In the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the crisis has become widely visualized as a standoff. It's usually seen as a game of chicken. As Soviet ships sailed towards the blockade, one side had the yield or there would be war. After a period of extreme tension, 14 Soviet ships turned around 
And Dean Rush famously commented, we're eyeball to eyeball, and I think the other fellow just blinked. Now, to both government and public, the fact that the Soviet ships had physically turned around appeared categorical evidence that Khrushchev had retreated and, by implication, lost the crisis, a framing effect reinforced when the Soviets later pulled out the missiles. Historians have also tended to frame the crisis in these standoff terms. It arguably became very difficult to divorce this mental picture as the crisis of the crisis of the standoff with the Soviets blinking first from the actual terms of the deal being carefully negotiated behind closed doors in Washington and in Moscow. I would suggest that if the crisis had been settled with the exact same settlement terms, but at a negotiated agreement at an international conference, observers would have been much more likely to emerge from 1962 thinking back on the same event as a negotiated draw rather than as an American triumph. Now, my second example uh, of the effects of crisis evolution concerns the time points used to create a before and after snapshot to see who is gained or who is lost. I.e., to see what uh, changes have occurred, you need to have a before and after comparison. So the question is, what two time positions are you going to use? And those two time positions are not objective, they're subjective, and they, different time positions can produce very different evaluations. Now, with regard to the Cuban Missile Crisis, the first time point tends to be the Cuba of October 1962, with missile sites already under preparation. When we compare this before shots with an after uh, time point uh, of Cuba without missiles, then one naturally inclines towards seeing a, a, a US victory. Why, however, do observers not compare the post-crisis situation with the state of affairs before Khrushchev decided to put missiles in Cuba? This latter comparison would suggest instead that Khrushchev gambled aggressively and won a concession in return for a promise never again to place missiles in Cuba. This analysis, in fact, these, these alternative time points might have been used if the timing of the discovery of the missiles had been earlier, say, on Russian ships sailing across the Atlantic. In this scenario, instead of the removal of the missiles appearing to be a gain, their placement on Cuba is a loss. Therefore, a return to the status quo requires that the ships turn around without America uh, offering any concessions. Now, third, uh, let me uh, talk briefly about perception manipulation. In addition to prior biases and crisis evolution, certain actors, including politicians and the media, can consciously manipulate perceptions of victory and defeat by shaping the information available in the public realm either by managing known facts or by keeping certain facts <coughs> For example, the tapes, the secret tapes of the XCOM meetings, the committee on the American side which decided the US response, reveal that during the crisis itself, Kennedy was comparatively dovish and cautious. However, Kennedy and his political associates assiduously nurtured the image of a cool but tough president under pressure, strong but gracious and downplayed the president's dovishness. This was achieved in part by labeling Adelaide Stevens as the appeaser within the administration. <laughs> For example, Kennedy was asked, asked to correct any errors in a journalist's article in the crisis, with the article claiming that Adelaide Stevenson had sought to appease the Soviets, that he wanted a Munich involving a deal over Turkish missiles, which obviously the president had rejected. <coughs> Kennedy decided to leave this particular statement unsubstantiated. Now, during the crisis, 
Kennedy also successfully framed the issue as being solely a matter of the status of the Soviet missiles, and almost entirely avoided the issue of Castro's survival, whose removal, remember, had previously so preoccupied the administration. The importance of the non-invasion plan was minimized by uh, describing it as a, a mere gesture to allow Khrushchev to stay face. Framed in this way as a mere gesture, Kennedy was able to make the pledge politically acceptable, when in a different political context, it could easily have been branded appeasement. It should be noted that during the crisis, there was a general acceptance by the American media of everything the administration said at face value. Now, one very clear example of deception manipulation was the secrecy attached to the Turkish missile partisans. Khrushchev stuck to his promise not to reveal the deal, despite its obvious propaganda mode. George Bundy later admitted, quote, we misled our colleagues, our countrymen, our successors and our allies in order to protect Western security. Overall then, Kennedy chose to have the American people believe he had won a man-to-man showdown with the Soviet Kremlin. Now, conclusions and implications. In this paper, we examine two frameworks which explain how observers reach evaluations of victory and defeat in international crises. Framework 2 was more effective in explaining the almost unanimous perception of US victory in 1962. The reality of the settlement was ambiguous. For example, both leaders would apparently have been willing to offer more if pressed. These perceptions of victory mattered enormously. Despite the ambiguous settlement, Kennedy in the United States emerged with enhanced prestige. In contrast, the Soviet state of China was exacerbated, and Khrushchev was soon removed from office. Now, from this new perspective, we can see that when the crisis began, the cards were already stacked against Christian. Any apparent retreat would be pounced upon by critics in China, the Soviet Union, and Cuba as a dramatic failure. The timing of the discovery of the missiles ensured that their removal would appear to be a loss. Meanwhile, the American quarantine strategy created the image of a standoff in which the Soviets would find it difficult to avoid at least a symbolic retreat without fighting a war in the American backyard. Finally, Khrushchev was dealing with a U.S. administration skilled at managing opinion, both within the U.S. and amongst its allies. If, if Khrushchev had known all of this, and he still sought to avoid losing, what he should have done is not invest his energy in the details of the settlement terms, but in shaping the way in which the settlement came about prioritizing, above all, the image of a negotiated balanced agreement, an image which so spectacularly failed to arise. Now, the Cuban case is an illustration that material gains in international relations can be obscured by biased perceptions. The aim is not to show that framework two is always primary. In most wars, and in some crises, framework one is sufficient. Framework two is particularly likely to matter when the material outcome is ambiguous. Now let me just present some uh, implications. Policy tools. The ability to manipulate opinion suggests a capacity to ameliorate military defeat and exaggerate military victory. At the extreme, a political victory can be uh, gained from the jaws of a military defeat. Hearts and minds. States strive to beat opponents with better diplomacy, tactics, technology, and so on. Yet such material outcomes can prove secondary to the role of perceptions. 
Therefore, shaping perceptions could be the most important battle. The self-fulfilling prophecy. Evaluations of victory alter international relations such that the misperceived reality becomes the reality. For example, when perceptions of a Soviet defeat in the Cuban Missile Crisis exacerbated the Sino-Soviet split, then this defeat became very real for Moscow. The lessons of history. Perceptions crucially shape the recalled history of crises, which in turn can have potent effects in influencing subsequent foreign policy. Perceiving the United States as having triumphed in the Cuban Missile Crisis can lead to the conclusion that nuclear crises are inherently manageable or winnable, which is a very dangerous assumption. The cementing of perception. Interestingly, one particular view of who had won and lost tends to become solidified over the long term, suggesting that ambiguous elements are interpreted as corroborating evidence. Now, interaction effects, which I'm going to touch on extremely briefly, though I could talk about this for a long time, but there are complex interactions between the two frameworks and also between the three elements of framework two. Let me just give you one example. Spin, or deliberate manipulation, a framework two factor, affects perceptions of the satisfaction of actors' aims, a framework one factor, more than it does material changes, the other framework one factor. And the reason is that actors' aims are inherently subjective and therefore more manipulable uh, than uh, material changes, which can be uh, clear-cut. Now, let me just touch finally on the applicability of uh, these frameworks to probably the two biggest issues in international security at the moment, North Korea and the war on terror. Now, the North Korean case, I would argue, represents a fascinating comparison with the Cuban Missile Crisis, since in both cases, the United States uh, is offering concessions for the removal of a nuclear threat. When Bill Clinton offered concessions in 1994, this was labelled by Republican critics as uh, the United States giving in to blackmail. So, what this suggests is that offering concessions for the removal of a nuclear threat is a strategy which can be interpreted in many different ways. Uh, Adlai Stevenson in 62 was labelled an appeaser. Bill Clinton in 94 was seen as giving into blackmail, whilst Kennedy in 62 is seen as a strong and gracious statesman. Now, uh, George Bush is about to offer concessions, I would predict, uh, or at least uh, is moving in that direction. But he seems to be aware of the uh, importance of perceptions of victory, since he's going out of his way to shape how these concessions are presented using two strategies. The first is one that John F. Kennedy liked to use, whereby uh, America offers a real concession combined with an extremely hard-line position on another issue. So what Bush is saying is, uh, you can have security guarantees, which is a genuine concession, but there is no chance of a non-aggression treaty. Uh, the second strategy is that George Bush is presenting whatever deal is reached in a uh, multilateral framework. Um, this presents the, the concessions as being the will of America's regional partners and obviously dilutes responsibility. Um, now, the second example I want to give is the war on terror. Now, the war on terror is an extremely ambiguous case for understanding victory and defeat, since it is unlike either a traditional war or a traditional crisis. Um, and it, to me, it doesn't seem clear um, how observers will reach evaluations of America's relative success, how well it's doing, it's victory and defeat in the war of terror. Neither even is it clear to me what criteria people ought to use 
to judge how well America is doing. Since uh, many of America's successes, for obvious reasons, can never be publicly revealed, while some of the failures are all too obvious. So let me just leave this talk with a, a quote from uh, Donald Rumsfeld in his uh, not-so-secret October 16th private memo. <laughs> um, quote, we lack the metrics for knowing if we are winning or losing the war in terror. Thank you.
there are kids that had to suffer. Uh, European conferences have decided that they couldn't get as much of the material games that they actually won the war. And uh, I mean, Turks constantly thought they had lost. Uh, different people in Boston thought they had won and lost. And so I'm not really sure where we kind of get to the point that you can be so uh, specific about Kramer Kwan working for wars. And on material things in general, you, you differentiate between uh, the two aspects of Kramer Kwan, uh, the material aspect and the uh, aims. You said, well, the aims are big, but so they're harder. Well, so is the material, so are the material aspects hard. And you gave the examples of Jupiter missiles in Turkey, and you have like five different perspectives on them. Well, they're material. Uh, at McNamara, within 10 minutes of the first XCOM meeting, declares the missiles militarily irrelevant. And uh, after the president said they have to go, then he sort of swallowed his own analysis for the rest of the crisis and decided they had to go too, but not for military reasons, not for material reasons at all. Right. I actually, um, again, would be sympathetic to both of on, on the second one about uh, material things, I think that there is, there is a strong degree of uh, perception and subjectivity regarding those. I think there is less than there is in terms of the satisfaction of active aims, since uh, it's extremely difficult to know what an active aim is. Whilst material changes can sometimes be very ambiguous, but often are relatively clear compared to satisfaction of aims. Um, but I agree with this degree of misperception. Now, on wars, um, I threw out the statement that most wars can be explained through framework one rather than framework. Um, that's not based on a systematic analysis. In fact, if that turns out to be untrue, then I regard that as interesting and provides many more case studies to look at. Um, but uh, what I think would be the case is that many, let me say many, more than crisis anyway, the war ends with uh, a relatively clear cut victory. Um, the, the settlement which follows the war, if there's a peace treaty, can be a separate um, issue area. So, for example, World War I is clearly beside one. Um, and yet the Treaty of Versailles was interpreted and reinterpreted in many different ways, picture of the people different side. But crises, again, in relative terms, crises are inherently ambiguous, I think, because they tend to be followed by a settlement which is uh, extremely unclear and therefore open to these kind of perceptions. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'll, it's a little unclear to me if exactly what is uh, doing the perceiving in uh, this model. At some points, uh, you talk about the influence of domestic audiences on what is uh, going on. For instance, in the Kennedy situation, the consumption of the domestic American audience. Sometimes you're talking about China, United States, country-level actors mm -hmm. doing perceiving. And then, overall, you talk about the outcome of the Cuban Missile Crisis as being sort of a systemic perception of the U.S. having won. So I guess what I'm saying is, uh, I, I mean, I might want to suggest you sort out which actors are doing which perceiving, and I guess what, what the role of uh, different actors coming to different perceptions about, I guess, the outcome of a crisis might mean for, uh, I guess, this way of looking at crisis, because it seems to me the Cuban Missile Crisis is a, a, a quote, easy case where the system pretty much came to a fairly uniform conclusion as to how the crisis unfolded. And in most, I would say, cases where that figured uh, scope conditions are ambiguous material outcomes, you would, uh, I would expect to see a lot of crises with ambiguous perceptual outcomes as well. Which is fine. Um, to have variance amongst different actors in interpreting events is fine. Um, which actors I'm concerned with, um, as I said out at the beginning, I'm concerned with uh, the, the perceptions 
of those actors who are not themselves directly involved in making decisions. And the categories, I would say, were public opinion, the media, certain politicians, by which I mean opposition politicians, but also international audiences, say the Chinese, because they're not involved. But these, these are the observers who tend to be missed out in the vast bulk of the literature on perception and misperception, which looks at, you know, how do the decision-makers view events, how do they use lessons of history, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I'm interested in the outsiders and their views from the outside. But you, your second point is right, that in the Cuban Missile Crisis, there's this striking uniformity of perception. But in many uh, crises and wars, there would be considerable variance, both between countries and within countries. Yeah. Do the role of outside perception only come into play after the crisis is over, or is there some sort of interaction effect between um, perceptions of outsiders while the crisis is going on and therefore influencing the decision makers itself? I think you mentioned something in your conclusion about that affecting uh, the biases in China and Cuba affecting Khrushchev's actions. Well, I think in the Cuban Missile Crisis, these perceptions are, uh, are most important after the crisis finishes, um, because the, things, the, the key effects are things like the increase in Kennedy's prestige, the sign of Soviet split, so, and those follow the crisis. In other cases, in, in more drawn-out crises, uh, or in wars, then you would expect uh, the perceptions of outsiders to actually then bounce back and affect decision-makers themselves. But during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was such a short crisis, and the American public opinion, for example, was... Uh, well, I wouldn't say irrelevant, but it was to some extent uh, outside the, the box of decision making, um, it had less immediate effect. The impact of these perceptions was more in the medium term, I would say. Actually, and also in the, the, the November election. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about spin uh, and fact manipulation, um, I, I recall the example that I, just, I find fascinating because I don't think there was any fact manipulation but in the teeth of the facts, without manipulating facts at all, the Clinton administration was able to spin Kosovo as a victory. Um, you know, General Wesley Clark goes around now and constantly says, our victory in Kosovo is so unlike Iraq. Whereas, you know, if you look at any of the administration's war aims, if you look at the aftermath of Kosovo, if you look at, you know, any uh, objective indicators, there's no victory in Kosovo. There was no <coughs> time that we were doing our 70 days of bombing, and there, you know, it's, it's an abject failure until today. But Albright, in particular, and Clark simply assert, without manipulating the facts, they never say, oh, we had different war aims. We really intended to get, you know, we really intended to wait a year until Milosevic was out, or we really intended to have UN troops there, NATO troops there for years on end, they, they don't have any of, they don't manipulate the facts, they simply say, we won in Kosovo. Mm -hmm. And I, I find it fascinating, and I just think it might be a nice uh, additional, well, it's certainly another Balkan war that's worth studying. <laughs> 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 As other Balkan yeah. wars, but, you know, just when you're talking <laughs> about the <laughs> yeah. And nobody ever wins. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody ever wins. <laughs> <laughs> and what were the material games? <laughs> That's a great war game. The, the, the KLA are bitterly unhappy they don't have their own country. They're still busy killing Serbs. I mean, I would guess the majority of the American public, for example, don't really know what criteria to use to apply to. to but they Kosovo. think we won in Kosovo. Because Milosevic was there. Right. right. That's the frame that they're using. Um, even, though, course, even though it didn't, you know, we right. didn't get around. Right. I think that's a great example of how there's a gap between. What the, the fact, the complex reality of the case, and the rather simple <coughs> framework that people are using to interpret it. But in talking about how administrations or decision makers 
been their victory. Oh, yeah. and I, I think it's an amazing example that you don't have to mm -hmm. go as far as you did to suggest, you know, the Bush administration is not famous for uh, manipulating facts, right. as you suggested, but you don't even have to go so far. Public are, are easily uh, brought into the perception that a decision-maker really wants to bring. Well, in this Kosovo example, I say, oh, so many parties have an interest in claiming victory today. So like Russians claim it's a victory for them because they mediated the war to a peaceful conclusion and they have peacekeepers uh, cooperating with NATO. Europeans claim it's a victory for them because they finally got the U.S. involved in uh, a multilateral operation uh, with more European involvement. And today they claim it's a great victory because of the European commander there. Uh, and of course, the Serbian opposition now claims that it's a victory for them because they got rid of the laws of it. So, the aftermath becomes like fodder for people to make you know, competing and non-rebuttal claims. Because right? no one talks to each other. I mean, the Russians and Americans are arguing over whether or not it's a victory. They're willing to accept that, oh, yeah, fine. You call the victory for yourself. I'll call the victory for myself. Saddam Hussein probably still thinks he won in 1991. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the Gulf War. Yeah, I was going to say that. Amical Ali still thinks that there's no name, that the U.S. is not a bad guy. Is he and the U.S. still thinks it's up as mass destruction in Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that war, the Iraq war, I think, uses a clear cut example of victory for people, until I remember the, the, the same perception. Perception um, <laughs> <laughs> within Iraq, at least certain elements. Uh, any more questions? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what uh, Khrushchev did to try and manipulate the perception of the situation. It seems like it would be in his interest to try and make people think that he's won, and, and based on your evidence, that he had some tools to work with to make that seem possible. So what accounts for his failure to make an argument that, that he won the crisis? That's a good question. Um, clearly, Khrushchev's public relations machine was working less effectively than Kennedy's. But Khrushchev was operating under um, one important constraint which is that he had agreed not to mention the Turkish missiles part of the deal. Um, and most people think that he did this, um, and this was purely a benefit to Kennedy to keep it secret. Okay. But actually, the keeping the, of, uh, the, the Turkish missile part of the deal secret was also a benefit to Khrushchev in his relations with Castro. Because what Castro really hated the idea of is that Cuba was a pawn in the superpower game, which was going to be traded away for games in Turkey. And when uh, Castro found out about the Turkish missile deal in 1963, he was, in fact, incredibly annoyed and angry with, with uh, Christian. So operating with that constraint, he couldn't mention the, the Turkish missile part of the deal, which was one of his strongest cards to play in terms of shaping victory. He did try. I mean, if you read his memoirs and you read his... You see his speeches, he's there saying, he alternates between it was an ambiguous draw, a victory for common sense and peace, and but, but we made real gains with the non-invasion pledge. And it's, you know, we saved the revolution, etc. But I would argue that when he said that, he was making arguments uh, on uh, ground which was not fertile for those kind of arguments because of the kind of biases and the framing of the crisis and the way it was seen as a, a, him standing down and so on. he didn't make some of the sense yet. Um, so I'd like to go back to the importance of winning and being seen as winning. I was really struck by the contrast between your description of the standoff frame and the negotiated settlement. With the negotiated settlement being perceived as, as a draw, um, and it makes me wonder if, if this 
If this leads then do you think to political pressures to take the more dramatic step, either in a standoff frame or some other form of preemptive action invasion, to be seen. I guess I'm, I'm trying to get at why is it so important to be seen as a victor as opposed to coming out of a negotiated settlement that something that both sides can claim an element of victory from? You mean win-win? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to avoid that scarcity. Right. Both. Well, the, I think the, the most important thing is not being seen to lose. Um, a, a draw might be acceptable, um, but being seen to lose is probably going to be the immediate end of your political career. Um, or the now, the issue about negotiated settlements um, versus the standoff model is interesting. And the, there was some awareness by the Americans during the crisis of the two routes and where they would lead. And uh, within the XCOM, there was considerable concern about what would happen if they did go to an international conference and sat down with Khrushchev and started bargaining away. And that they tended to see this as disastrous, both uh, in terms of the, the concessions they would have to make, but also the, the way in which domestic opinion would see that kind of um, settlement. Now, the, the problem is, once the uh, Russians had put missiles in, then any international conference, I think, would have been labelled by Republicans as a peaceful. That was the difficulty that, that they had. And I would argue that Khrushchev would have got much more out of the Cuban Missile Crisis if he'd managed to go to a conference than haggling over Turkish missiles. So, in this case, the negotiations wouldn't really have been well, we do, I don't know what would have happened and what concessions, but I would suggest that even if the, uh, the U.S. managed to get the same deal, that the negotiated settlement would still have shifted uh, the frame of perception. Seeing two politicians walk out of uh, a hotel in Geneva and stand there side by side and announce a deal gives you the immediate impression that what you're witnessing is a negotiated draw. But seeing Khrushchev's ships turn around and the missiles leave, that's a, a, a framing effect which is very difficult to remove when you're kind of trying to assess what has really changed in the process. Right, I think we're done. Oh, uh, in terms of your, your, your find your two uh, clusters of ideas to uh, wars and non-wars, um, but in the case of crises like this, if the sense of it is no cost, you can win, and it costs you negligible, basically, one person died, for example, but in case of a war, you could win a war, and, and, and uh, it would still be too costly to a victory, for example, if you don't really have the cost of the, so it may not, what you're doing, you apply basically costless things like crises that resolve successfully, not necessarily the war. So it would be possible to have a scenario in which um, one side, uh, despite what you're putting your victory, just stuff that's such, to, uh, Tangible material losses that that overshadowed even the so very um, uh, Yeah, that is a possible scenario, um, which um, we'd have to take account of when we're looking at uh, evaluations of the unit. Um, yeah, no, I didn't do that. Yeah. Much of your emphasis was on prior belief, even bias. And my mind and brain was more motivated desire see victory, and it would shift. You know, I can remember Americans, they used to get out of Vietnam, they ready to declare victory and leave the And, you know, I can imagine uh, others saying, geez, you know, I really care, I just want to avoid war. Now that we've avoided war, I'm sort of, well, that's good enough in the settlement. And, you know, there's certainly, of course, that can change over time, you know, and 
society has had enough of this and bring clarification from, but it's motivated, the desire to see it as good enough and, and call it win. Right. Now, I was struck by yeah. cases like the Palestinians where you don't get to that position. You know, a draw is still not good enough for many of them. So, but if it's just motivated, I'm not sure it's so cognitive as much as it's rooted in something else. Well, I would still say that that represents a lens. I mean, when, if that, that is still a belief which the actor has. And when they look at the settlement, they're going to interpret the material changes and the satisfactory aims through that lens, and that's going to shape the way that they see it. It's true that that's a different type of belief than some of the ones I mentioned, but it would still nevertheless uh, work at the lens. Clearly, I'm bunching a whole load of things together in this framework. I mean, prior biases, there's all kinds of different biases you can have um, in lots of different ways, but it's, it's an attempt to try to. Yeah. I think the special cultural suggestion for Dante was a win 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 outcome. Anyway, and, and what, what Rick was saying is that it, it, it certainly seems that in most cases this is going to be contested. There isn't going to be a highly universally shared conception because of all the reasons you're talking about. So, apart from this particular case, how
No, we're coming up. <laughs> there are going to be Russian elections on the weekend, and on Friday we're going to have Tim and Jerry hold forth on on about them, I guess. Sounds good. Oh, anyway, we have a little round table now. It'll be mostly brown bag if you want healthy food, or uh, I've agreed to bring some Adriatico's pizza down here. It's going to be uh, last day of the quarter and a nice discussion. Uh, on what's coming this weekend in Russia. Are you going to talk about this? Yeah, we are going to have a lot of I hope you all saw Jerry's speech in the newspaper that democracy still has a chance in Russia. We've had elections. I'm Jerry Mike. There's going to be some more. What's that? Will you talk about the impact of the elections on the Chechen conflict? Well, I mean, after, I suppose, after we're going to speak. Well, after the elections. We want to hear it before. Yeah. So if you've got time on Friday, you're doing this on the winter, you know, like, oh, why you ask the question? But Nicholas is back, I don't